Well, good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Justin, uh, and I'm a student pastor here at GBC. And it is truly my privilege to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. And we are looking at the stunning reality of our adoption in Christ. I've been praying this morning that your heart and your minds would be shaped by this wonderful truth. That we are, we have been made sons and daughters of the Most High God. I want this morning for this truth to shape the way that you love him and live for him. I want you to see and to feel the heights of God's love for you. That he would make you his child. That he would bring you into his family. In the last couple of weeks, we've been climbing this mountain of God's grace toward us in the Lord Jesus, haven't we? We've heard the truth that God has justified us, that is, he's made us right before his judgment seat, and that he's reconciled us, that he's brought us into right relationship with himself. And there really have been some incredible views along the way, hasn't there? And now today, we get to the peak of this mountain of grace. We reach the highest point of the nature of this salvation that we have in Jesus. Adoption. The truth that we have been made God's children. You see, while justification has allowed us to stand righteous before God in his courtroom, adoption takes us even further, doesn't it? And it gives us a seat in his living room to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by the Father is far greater. Let me read for you again 1 John 3 verse 1. See, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. This morning I want to show you why and how We are children of God. I want to take you to this mountain peak of God's amazing love for us. And to do this, we will have to cover a lot of ground. So let me plead with you. Let your heart be engaged this morning as we consider God's word. Another careful pastoral note that I want to make is that chances are you're sitting here this morning and you've had horrible, terrible experiences with your earthly father. And let me say that I'm, I'm deeply sorry and I want to mourn with you because of those things. But I also want to hold out our heavenly father for you, to show you how deeply he loves you, that he cares for you and he does everything for your good. Please do not compare your God, God to your earthly father. But even in your hurt and your pain, see your heavenly Father for who he truly is. Let these truths lift your eyes to be set upon Christ so that he can show you the depths of the Father's love for you. Let us pray together now that, and ask that as we look at his word, the Spirit would do this work in our hearts. Gracious Father, we come to you as you are, 
our Father. And we pray that you would show us this morning the depths of your love for us as your children. May we see you for who you are and that we would love you more deeply and that we would walk with you more faithfully because of it. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now the word adoption, it appears in the New Testament just five times and all of them actually appear in Paul's letters. And most literally, the Greek word means to place or to put sonship. And surprisingly enough, adoption was not actually a common practice in ancient Israel. There were no laws commanding Israel to adopt infants, but in fact, Paul uses this term, adoption, in reference to a practice that was commonplace in Roman society. And this is the way that adoption would work, that if a man of status and wealth was unable to have children, then he would adopt a son, And perhaps this is more surprisingly, he would adopt an adult son to be the heir of his inheritance. Why an adult, you might be wondering? Well, it is so that he could ensure that it was someone capable and worthy of his inheritance. And this is why it would only be a son. And this is why Paul commonly referred to us being adopted as sons, because all of the rights and status of the wealthy man would be placed upon the one being adopted. And in Roman culture, this never would have been a woman. But this is not true of the Christian, is it? God has adopted both men and women and made them his children. He has placed the rights and status and inheritance that is rightfully Jesus upon us all. This is something that I want to unpack further a little later on, But it's an important note that I want to make here, that when Paul uses the term sons, he does not mean only males, but rather this is to show that all of us, both men and women, are co-heirs with Christ and will receive everything that is owing to him. Everything is yours in Christ Jesus. God truly has brought sons and daughters into his family. And Paul uses this rich metaphor and analogy to describe how we have entered into God's family as his children. Adoption into the family of God is not something that is owed to us or something that is flippantly given. But what I want us to see this morning that purposefully and intentionally is that God the Father has arranged our adoption, God the Son has accomplished our adoption, and God the Spirit has applied our adoption. And as with every part of our salvation, the scriptures show us that it is Trinitarian in nature. That is, every member of the Trinity is actively involved in saving us, and they have their distinct roles in bringing it about. And while this sermon is not explicitly about adoption, uh, (laughs) explicitly on the Trinity, I do want you to see that our adoption works itself out in this way. So first, let us consider how God the Father has arranged our adoption. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1? We're going to read verses 3 through 6, and it'll be on the screen as well. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In this passage, Paul explodes in praise as he considers the wonders of the gospel. And as he does consider the wonders of the gospel, he gives us a peek into the inner life of God and his plans. Before God created the world, he chose us to be in Christ, to be holy and blameless before him. This alone is staggering, isn't it? But he goes on. In love, he predestined us for adoption, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Our adoption is not plan B. It was planned by God from the very beginning. In your mind's eye, picture the scene in Genesis 1, where the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It was there, even before he spoke and said, let there be light, he had already decided to adopt you. In fact, he said those words, let there be light, so that he would adopt you. Why would God do this? Well, some might be tempted to think that God was lonely, or he was bored, or he needed satisfaction, or he needed to be loved. No, God is perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He has perfect relationship within himself, in the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is not lonely or in need of love or satisfaction. But what does verse 6 say? That he arranged this adoption before time to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. From his fullness, because of grace, for his glory, He has predestined us for adoption. It is only because of grace, church. You see, God has made much of us to make much of himself, and he planned to bring us into his family so that we may enjoy him and bring him glory. God the Father has arranged our adoption. This truly is amazing grace, isn't it? This ought to create a sense of wonder and awe and humility in us, shouldn't it? This truth that God has chosen us before we chose him, that it was his plan all along to bring us into his family, that even though he knew that we would reject him, shame him, disgrace him, even ultimately kill him by putting him on a cross, despite all of our sin against him that he knew we would commit, he chose to adopt us. This was his plan all along. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It is similar, but also very different to the adoption process that we have today, isn't it? Perhaps you can imagine the pain that a husband and wife would have that drives them to seek to adopt a baby for themselves. They go through months and months, even years, filling in paperwork, saving tens of thousands of dollars and waiting and waiting until they get to the top of this list 
because they so desperately want to have a baby to love and to hold and to cherish. And while that absolutely benefits the baby, who would otherwise have nobody else to love them, it also fills a void in the parents, doesn't it? Just like in Roman culture, there is a self-serving element to human adoption, isn't there? But it isn't like that with God. God has no void to fill. He already has everything he could ever need. Yet still, securing a family of adopted children occupied the mind of God since before the foundations of the earth were laid. Our adoption began in heaven before it came to us on earth. It was out of his fullness that his grace extends to us. God did not adopt you because he had to. He adopted you because he wanted to. He wanted you. But do you know what? It cost him a far greater price than what any earthly parent have to pay. What did it cost God to accomplish our adoption? God has not left us to guess what his fatherhood amounts to, but it has been clearly revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It cost him his own son. So let's consider how God has accomplished our adoption and turn just a couple of pages before to Galatians chapter 4. And let's read verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We've seen that God the Father arranged adoption before the world was created, and now we see that God the Son has accomplished adoption. That is, he purchased it, he secured it for us. God sent forth his Son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. That is, he purchased those of us who are under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. That's accomplished. This is why Jesus ultimately came. Yes, to forgive us our sins. Yes, to give us eternal life. Yes, to make us right with God. But more than that, to make us children of God. You see, it is in and through Jesus that we receive this incredible gift of sonship. This is why J.I. Packer can say that adoption is a higher privilege than justification because this ultimately is what he died for. Now, this illustration is only theoretical because we do have every spiritual blessing in Christ through faith, but God could have declared us righteous and just left it at that, couldn't he? He could have instead just made us like the angels are. They're perfect, they're righteous, they're holy, aren't they? But they're not his children. This is a privileged position that he has given to us. Our gift of justification is for this purpose of adoption. This is God taking us from the courtroom and into his living room. Instead of making you a servant in his kingdom, he has made you a son, a daughter of the king. 
Jesus' death on the cross was to pay for your sins and for mine. And he was raised from the dead and he secured every blessing for us. He has accomplished our salvation. And for what? That we would receive adoption as sons. This perhaps flies in the face of what many people think. Many people think that we are all children of God. And in one sense we are, because God has made everything and everyone. We all do come from God. But this does not mean that we are all his children in the way that the New Testament shows that we are. At both a legal and relational level, it is only those who are in Christ. It is only those who belong to him. It is only those who have repented from their sins and trusted in him for their salvation that we have the right to become children of God. Let's look to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'll just put it on the screen, verses 10 through 13. He, that's Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Only those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, has he been given the right to become children of God. The idea that all people are children from God is not found in the scriptures. It is a precious right reserved only for those who trust in Jesus. What urgency this ought to create in us to take the gospel to our family and friends and neighbours. How could we keep this good news to ourselves? Why would we not plead with people to come and to join us in the family of God? May our Father stir up our hearts with awe and wonder at this glorious truth. and May he give us this same love for others that he has for us. God is not father to us unless we trust in Jesus and receive by faith what he has accomplished for us. This, this is how this God the Spirit applies adoption. Let's look to Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We see here that the Holy Spirit plays an essential role in our adoption to sonship, doesn't he? Verse 14, if we are led by the Spirit, then we are sons of God. And verse 15, we have received the Spirit of adoption as sons. And Paul says almost the same thing back in Galatians 4, where we came from, doesn't he? Verses 6 and 7, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And this is what Ephesians 1 calls the spirit, uh, the seal of redemption, a guarantee, a down payment. It's like God stamps his name on you and calls you his own. It's kind of like the giving of an engagement ring. Matt has given a ring to Christine to pledge, to promise, to marry her. And in their eyes, it's as good as done, isn't it? Though they still have to wait a little while longer for the fullness of the promise, their commitment to each other is still the same. This is the role of the Spirit in our adoption. God has adopted us by giving us his Spirit. This is his sign, the seal, the proof, the adoption papers, as it were. Now, of course, the Spirit is much more than this, isn't he? The Spirit's not an it, it's a he. He is a person, the third person of the Trinity. And he's so far from being just a thing that we receive. And we see this relational nature of the Spirit in our adoption in verse 16, don't we? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit tells us that we are children of God. It is this internal testimony that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit is given to us in our adoption as sons and daughters, and he causes us to see God as our Father now. He causes us to call out, to long for, to love and to know God as our Heavenly Father. And the obvious question here is, is this true for you? Perhaps you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian because you go to church and you read your Bible, you do lots of good things. But do you long for, do you call out to, do you love and know God as your Heavenly Father? This passage here in Romans tells us that this will be true of you if you have been adopted into the family of God. Now, I don't say this to scare or to shake anyone's confidence because the reality is there'll be many days in our Christian walk where we'll feel distant from God. We wonder where he is as we wrestle with our sin and try to walk according to his ways. There will be many days that we feel cold toward him and struggle in prayer. But does that desire remain to know him, to call out to him, love him as your heavenly father this is the witness of the holy spirit to our spirits perhaps you're here today and you do not yet know god as your father your image of him might be an angry judge or a cold and distant puppet master but the truth is you are here today because he's calling you to enter into his family you're here today to hear this good news that God loves you and is calling you to be your child. Come, trust in what the Lord Jesus has done for you and enter into the Father's love. The last verse in the passage also shows us the glorious reality of our adoption into sonship. The logic here is is that if we are children of God, then we're also heirs of God 
and fellow heirs with Christ. How wonderful is this? The view again from, uh, from the peak of this mountain of God's grace for us is overwhelming because we are heirs with Christ. We are heirs. Christ is seated on the throne with all authority in heaven and on earth and is above every ruler and authority and dominion and power. Everything is under his feet. He owns it all. Everything in creation is his. The Father has given the entire kingdom to him. And we get to share in that. Hard to believe, isn't it? In Luke 12, 32, Jesus says these words, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Because you are his children, it is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We receive the Son's full inheritance because we're in the Son. By the Spirit, adopted as children by God. The most wonderful thing about this inheritance is that before us is an eternity of love flowing from the Father. Revelation 19 gives us the picture of a marriage supper, doesn't it? Jesus and his bride, the church, sharing in this beautiful love forever and ever. But this is what's to come. What about now? Romans 8 goes on to recognize this tension that we live in. The truth that we are God's children now, but not yet do we experience the full realization of it, do we? Verses 22 and 23 say, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There is a final hope that we are waiting for. And this is the essence of our faith, isn't it? Again, as we read earlier in 1 John 3 verse 2, as children of God, we are waiting for that great and final day where we will be revealed as his children. Perfect, holy and blameless, able to enjoy the fullness of the glory of God and to dwell with him forever and ever in the new creation. What a glorious day that'll be. This surely is a great and marvellous hope that we share together, church the hope that one day we will receive our full adoption as sons and daughters. So We've seen this morning that God the Father has arranged our adoption. God the Son has accomplished our adoption and God the Spirit has applied our adoption. But what does all of this mean for us now? How do we live as sons and daughters of God now, but still waiting for the fullness of it to be revealed? Why does this matter when you're on your way to work tomorrow morning or when you're up in the middle of the night because your kids won't sleep or because your arthritis is really painful? What is it about this truth that ought to transform us? My prayer for you has been that you would see the beauty and wonder and greatness of the Father's love for you, that he would carry out his plan of salvation to make you his child. And that in seeing the wonder of his love, that this would make you more humble, 
more dependent, a child who loves and treasures and longs to live for the Heavenly Father. I truly hope that you have felt that this morning. So in closing, I want to list just three ways, though there are many more, that this ought to transform the way that we live as his beloved children. Firstly, this surely must shape our prayer life. This surely must make us more prayerful, more humble in our prayer, more dependent in our prayer. How is it that Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, we approach our heavenly Father in prayer, who loves us and has given us confidence in access to himself. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the world seeks after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You can pray confidently to your loving Father for all of your needs. You can approach the throne of grace boldly for help in time of need. You can know the sweetness of his presence as you come to him in prayer. Secondly, we can endure discipline knowing that we are children of God. Hebrews 12 says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Everything is used to shape and conform us into the image of the perfect son, Jesus. This is the hope that we're all waiting for, isn't it? When he appears, we shall be like he is, because we shall see him as he is. We can walk the storms of life knowing that we are beloved children of God and that he really is working all things for our good and for his glory. And finally, knowing that we are adopted as his children surely gives us an incredible assurance that we belong to him and that there is nothing to take us from him. Knowing that this was his plan from the beginning gives us confidence and assurance that he really does love us. His spirit within us, testifying to our spirit, assures us that we do belong to him. Christ's death on the cross to secure your adoption brings us such wonderful joy, knowing that there is nothing that we can do to earn or to keep our sonship because Christ has done it all. This assurance, knowing that we are his children, brings us such wonderful peace and a deep-rooted joy that can never be taken from us. And he so longs for his children to know that they're loved. He does not want you to be left wondering whether you belong to him or not. It would be like me leaving my children outside at night. 
though they legally belong to me and they're technically still on my property, they'd be scared, alone, wondering if I love them. Church, God wants you to know the love that he has for you. He wants to take you in his arms, to tuck you into bed, to give you a kiss and to tell you that he loves you. He does not leave you outside wondering if you're part of the family. Like the father of the prodigal son, he picks up his robe and runs to you, throws his arms around your neck and kisses you, gives you his ring and kills the fattened calf and throws the biggest party for you. He loves you. He really, really loves you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Father, we give you all praise, 